Let me begin uh, in 1584 uh, with the Irish jurist Carbon McGedigan, who prepared a, uh, an account of a division of property in Tipperary. And he noted in this uh, uh, division, uh, thus they agreed that a perpetual division should be set down in writing for fear of oblivion, and for this reason that writing is better than memory, that is, writing remains, memory departs, the old classical adage. However, the learned orders of late medieval Ireland understood that while writing preserved the continuity of text, it did not guarantee the continuity of meaning. The great codices of late medieval Ireland, such as the books of Lekin or the book of Ballymote, may have survived, uh, but the cultural context in which they existed changed over time. In the case of the book of Ballymote, uh, we can uh, divide, I think, four broad cultural contexts uh, within which the manuscript was used uh, over its lifetime. The first uh, was its creation and use by MacDonagh as a lordly book, uh, and then afterwards its sale to Edouard O'Donnell in the early 16th century, its use as a scholarly book. The second context is an antiquarian tradition uh, uh, personified by its early 17th century owner, Archbishop James Usher. The third context is as an artifact in the debate about how and why history should be written in the commercial world of early 18th century Dublin. And its fourth and final context is part of a library collection in the Royal Irish Academy in the years after 1785. Now, of this first context, there is a, great, a good deal that is unexplained, I think, still about the origins of the Book of Ballymote in the late 14th century. On the basis of its decoration and its very high standard of production, it was clearly meant to be a prestige book for a traditional Gaelic Irish lord. Uh, there are indeed uh, items in that volume that might even interest the lord, uh, and I think uh, one way of thinking about those uh, uh, translations of the classical texts, the destruction of Troy, uh, is simply that they were good stories and might provide an evening's entertainment for a lord. However, the contents of the book, despite its appearance, were not in the main the sort of material to interest most Irish lords. They comprised technical works of the learned, uh, the sort of thing which you did not let untrained uh, lords loose on. Though made for McDonough and still held by that family in 1522, its main users, uh, in fact, were the learned classes uh, and uh, how we square the idea of a working class book with a high level of decoration is an interesting question. Now, indeed, uh, we know that not only was it a class book for the learned of McDonough's lordship, but during the 15th century, uh, its fame and its texts uh, uh, spread uh, from the Book of Ballymote uh, into the hands of other learned families uh, in Ireland. Uh, for example, uh, the genealogies of the saints uh, created uh, for, by one of the scribes of the Book of Ballymote uh, seems to have served as an exemplar uh, for the same text uh, in part of British Library Additional 30512, uh, a Tipperary manuscript uh, compiled in the late 15th century. And again, there's a very close relationship uh, between the text of Cor uh, uh, Annam 
uh, in Ballymote, uh, and that in the uh, East Connaught Book of Evonia, as we've heard, uh, and also uh, the late 15th century North Connaught manuscript, now known as John Beaton's, Beaton's Broad Book. There's probably no more than one uh, layer between uh, each of those. So they seem uh, to be derived from Ballymote as texts were copied uh, by the learned uh, and, put, and given to their friends in other parts of the country. Probably in 1522, uh, the uh, ownership of the manuscript changed uh, when McDonough uh, sold it to Adolf O'Donnell. Uh, though remaining, and the uh, uh, explanation uh, in this, uh, the colophon, uh, the well-known colophon uh, at the bottom about the sale, uh, the, uh, though remaining in the hands of a traditional society, uh, its use, in fact, may have changed uh, after the transaction. The hand in which the, the colophon about the passage uh, from uh, um, the world of McDonough to the world of O'Donnell, um, which is presumably the hand of this colophon is the guy who actually owns the manuscript, it strongly resembles, and I think is, that of Gilarebach O'Clary, uh, suggesting that, and even if it's not Gilarebach himself, it's that of a scribe trained in the same school as the O'Clary's, uh, and perhaps even trained by Gilarebach. Now, the interest of the O'Clery family, while the O'Donnells bought it, it was clearly the O'Clery's who had it, in obtaining such a work, I think we can only infer. The, the book certainly contained much uh, that fed the arcane interests of the learned. Um, that is simply in factual terms. Moreover, it claimed to contain material from some of the most iconic manuscripts uh, of Gaelic Ireland, the Book of Glendalough, the Psalter of Cashel, Lorna Cart. Uh, but the manuscripts, manuscripts' interest, I think, for uh, the O'Clary's was even greater than simply the factual material it contained. Uh, the Book of Ballymote is not a miscellany. Uh, it's a very carefully structured collection of texts, I would argue. And I would argue that uh, in that uh, carefully structured... Uh, sorry, that's the colophon there. Sorry, uh, I'm, I'm not looking at this properly. That's the colophon there. Uh, in that clearly uh, um, carefully structured text, there is a social logic. Uh, and there is a social logic uh, in the ordering of the texts, how the texts sit one uh, with another. Uh, it begins, for example, uh, with the world, the six etatus mundi, universal and biblical history. Uh, it links that history of the world uh, through to Ireland with the synchronisms, uh, picking up, again, themes, biblical themes in the six etatus mundi. It moves through the Book of Invasions, uh, setting out the origin of the main family groups. Uh, having established the origins of the main family groups, uh, it then talks about the way in which that society is to be ruled, that is, as a kingdom. There are lists of the Christian kings, back to early texts, then what is a king, what advice on good kingship in the wisdom texts. And then having created this framework, the volume picks up on the individual large families in uh, Largoala uh, and links those to the vast quantities of genealogies which it contains, paralleling the secular uh, genealogies with the uh, genealogies of the king, of the saints, and attracting the saints. So you see what is, how it's working down through layers, uh, if you like, of society. Having described the ideal socio-political framework uh, in these, <coughs> by putting these various texts together, 
the manuscript uh, then moves on to more recent history in the form of the prose tales, which also, as we pointed out, explicate certain aspects of the genealogies which have gone before, uh, and then explaining the political hierarchy, how these families fit together in large McGart. So the, the, these texts, I think, appear in a particular order uh, for a particular reason. Then it goes on to talk about uh, other families, uh, having dealt with the uh, main families, um, other groups within society, if you like, women, the Manchanicus, and then a group of texts dealing with the learned, the texts that relate to the learned, the scholar's primer, the small primer, uh, and then finally, having described, I think, the structure, uh, broad structure of society, it then deals with the land in which that structure lived, the Manchanicus. Uh, in other words, there is, a, if you like, the manuscript, if you like, is a uh, depiction <coughs> of, ideally, how Irish society should work. So it has a very, overall, the effect of the manuscript, I think, is to imagine the interaction of history, society, and landscape in Ireland, and in doing so, create a very powerful sense of a coherent social world, clearly articulated social memory, in which people and place interacted to create a coherent Gaelic cultural context. And this, I think, is why the O'Clerys are interested in it. It's a very powerful social statement. Now, it seems that the Book of Ballymote was still in use within the O'Clery circle about 1608. A count of the kings of Connacht, uh, probably in the hand of the Donegal scribe Bram McNeilis, the man who produces the Franciscan copy of Manus O'Donnell's Life of Colin Killer, ends with an indication that the books of Lekin and Ballymote were the source. Quote, see the Book of Lekin and the Book of Ballymote for that, implying that the manuscript was still available to the learned class in Ulster and probably in Donegal at this stage. Now, how the Book of Ballymote moved out of the O'Clery circle following the collapse of that school after the flight of the Earls is uncertain. Uh, however, by 1619, it was in the hands of James Usher, then professor of ecclesiastical controversy in Trinity College, Dublin. Uh, in his correspondence with David Roth, later Catholic Archbishop of Ossory, Usher mentions, and I quote, two books which I have in my custody, the one of Ballymote, the other of Sligo, also called the Book of Lacken. Book of Lacken. Now, the association of these two codices with each other, both by Bram McNeilis in 1608 and Usher in 1619, raises the possibility that, in fact, they were together in the hands of the O'Clerys before 1607, and that Lekin before 1607 had been acquired by the O'Donnells in the same way as they had acquired the Book of Ballymote in 1522, as part of an exercise, if you like, in building up the cultural capital uh, of the O'Donnells, which is uh, why they seem to be collecting so many manuscripts in the 16th century. If that is so, the manuscripts may well have travelled together from the O'Clerys through the hands of Henry Pears, who owned the Book of Lecan in 1612, when he uh, counted the leaves in that volume, and finally uh, to the Book of Ballymote, and finally to Usher. Now, Usher's interest in and his use of the Book of Ballymote uh, was sparing. Uh, although he lent the Book of Lecan, which he, he owned to a number of individuals in the 1630s, including, including Colin McGagan, and possibly through him to Geoffrey Keating and Michal O'Clery, there is less evidence that Ballymote circulated in this way. Indeed, there's almost no evidence that, that Ballymote circulated in this way. Uh, Usher's principal interest in both Ballymote and Lecan was antiquarian, selecting individual pieces of information 
to suit a particular antiquarian argument rather than, as I've argued, the O'Clery saw the manuscript, which was uh, as a key to the social logic of the society where it originated. Now, this neglect by Usher uh, was compounded by the fact that his antiquarian interest is simply selecting pieces of information were ecclesiastical rather than secular, uh, and this, of course, reduced the usefulness of the manuscript to him. His technical ability to deal with the manuscript in both linguistic and codicological terms may also have been limited, but he knew enough to recognize uh, some features of it. He recognized, for example, that there were similarities between the books of Lekin and Danny Mote, as Nalik has pointed out, and he suggested that a, de a detailed comparison be made between them and the thing which will feature later, the Psalter of Cashel, which Roth, the uh, uh, later Bishop of Ossory, claimed to have seen. But Usher was clear that he didn't have the technical ability to undertake this task. Uh, however, he does cite the book of Ballymote on a number of occasions in his 1639 book, uh, Britannicarum Ecclesiarum Antiquitates, uh, dealing with the origins of the Christian Church in Britain. Uh, but Ballymote here is of limited value to him, uh, and in most cases, he cites the manuscript mostly to substantiate something he already found in other sources, uh, but interested principally in the genealogies, the genealogies of key saints, Patrick, Kira, and Colin Killa. Now, after its use by Usher in the 1630s, uh, the Book of Ballymote uh, disappeared from view. It may almost certainly was taken uh, to England. Um, sorry, that's, I'm, I'm getting out of sequence here. Um, uh, that's the, um, if you like, the original themes of Ballymote. Um, it's almost certainly taken to England with the rest of Usher's manuscripts in the uh, 1640s, and it was probably returned again to Trinity College in 1660, uh, when Usher's manuscript collection, which had been bought in the late 1650s, came from England. It's certainly in Dublin in 1666, when Sir James Ware's amanuensis, Dr. McFerbishin, noted but McFabership does not consult Ballymote, uh, suggesting that he didn't have it or it wasn't available to him. And this is probably because the manuscript was in the college library, accessible only to a few restricted people. It's certainly there in 1697 and 1707 when Edward Bernard and Edward Lewitt compile their lists of manuscripts. Now, at the beginning of the 18th century, however, the manuscript began to circulate again. In 1719, the then vicar of Trim, Anthony Raymond, um, a former fellow of Trinity, identified the manuscript as an important work for the early history of Ireland. He arranged for a list of the contents to be compiled, and then in October uh, 1719, he borrowed the, the volume from the Library of Trinity College Dublin as part of his project to write a new history of Ireland. Now, the context that shaped the way the manuscript would be used was rather different to what had gone before. Uh, the late 17th century had seen a, a process of the creation of a new sort of social memory, among uh, settlers in Ireland. Generational change had weakened connections with England and Scotland, and they came to view the ownership of their Irish property not as absolutely dependent on royal grants, but as a social construct dependent on inheritance, custom, compromise, and struggle. Now, in this, uh, it is imperative that a usable past needed to be provided. Uh, but what exactly a usable past was, was in some dispute. Uh, Richard Cox, for example, in Cork, uh, saw a little point in looking at the early history of Ireland for this usable past, but Anthony Raymond, William Nicholson, Francis Hutchison, Bishop Darren Connor, uh, uh, and others wandered into that world, the world of Irish language evidence, locating and trying to read such manuscripts. And I think it is worth noting that while we think of this in a Celtic Studies context, 
as being distinctively Irish. Uh, others in exactly the same circle, most notably John Lyon, is collecting and organizing Latin and English manuscripts uh, in Dublin, uh, rearranging the archives of Trinity College Dublin, St. Patrick's, College, St. Patrick's Cathedral, Christchurch Cathedral, and so on and so on. So this is a much more general phenomenon of collecting and recycling manuscripts than simply uh, Irish language manuscripts, although that's obviously what we are focusing on. In the late 17th century, uh, the public need for a modern narrative history of Ireland had been met by the scribal publication of the English language translations of Geoffrey Keatus, Forrest Fasser, or Aaron, that both Protestantized and updated the text. The Cromwellian soldier from Sligo, Thomas Hart, for example, commissioned two copies of such a work, and it seems very likely that his son Morgan was trying to get the work printed in the 1680s. But manuscript circulation limited the scope for dissemination here, and there was demand for a printed translation of Keating, and it was this marked with that Raymond and others, including Dermot O'Connor, who actually produced such a translation in 1723, are aiming at. Now, given this demand for a usable history of Ireland, a second consideration arose. Was Keating suitable? In the 1690s, a debate had erupted in England with Sir William Temple and Jonathan Swift against Richard Bentley and William Wharton that became known as the Battle of the Books between what became known as the Ancients and the Moderns. In this, the study of history was central <coughs> since it was, in essence, a debate about the purpose of the past, its usefulness and authority in the present, a subject of clear relevance in Ireland. Now, the debate was not new, and in fact, it reflects a tension inherent in humanistic learning. On the one hand, there were those who regarded the study of history as an unproblematic attempt to make the timeless ancient world live again, and believed that the universal ideas of the ancient world had an immediate relevance to the contemporary one. On the other hand, there were the moderns, insisting that the ancient world was in the past, its reconstruction was difficult, involving, as it did, the study of subjects such as philology and antiquities. They inclined to view that experience of the ancient world of limited relevance to the present. The ancients aimed at literary style, while the moderns sought to achieve technological, technical exactitude. Now, while this debate was about the study of classical Greece and Rome, it's not difficult to see how those arguments could apply to the study of the Irish past. For some, uh, Keating's Foris Fassa fell short of the standards demanded by the moderns. Thomas O'Sullivan, from, uh, from Kiltank in Tipperary, but by the 1720s living in London and practicing as a lawyer, was deeply skeptical. He thought the first part of Forest Fassa contained only idle stories that had been mistaken for genuine and good history, and the remainder, I quote, for the most part a heap of insipid, ill-digested fables. Others of this modern scholarly cast of mind agreed According to Anthony Raymond, for example, Keating's history had done great dishonour to the native Irish, since it led into mistakes by reading romance fictions of the poet, and it was a fabulous history. Now, Raymond wanted to have Keating's history improved using the latest technical findings of, for example, place name studies and textual analysis. It's probably significant that the only substantial part of Raymond's research to be published was a technical appendix on place names, uh, probably partly composed by Tago Nachten, who was a, sc a scribe employed by him and printed in 1726 as a supplement to a second edition of Keating's history. Against those, there were those, including Dermot O'Connor, who saw Keating's work as perfectly acceptable by the standards of the ancients, its deficiencies more than compensated for by its, linear quali by its literary quali quality. Now, in this debate, um, 
the uh, about the writing of the history of, uh, about the writing of Irish history. Uh, the um, the Book of Ballymote played a, a central part. Its antiquity made it the touchstone against which to judge other sources. Raymond needed to discover what the, what the manuscript contained and how it might be used. Now, there's signs that he's already engaged in that process before he borrows it from Trinity College Dublin. RIA 23-26 has a short list of the contents of the Book of Ballymote in a commonplace book assembled by Richard Tipper, a county Meath scribe, while the manuscript was still in Trinity College, Dublin. Now, this suggests that the manuscript had been seen by Raymond, who arranged for Tipper to copy selected passages. And Tipper's commonplace book also contains a number of other texts in the Book of Ballymote, and these may have been copied uh, by Tipper from the copies he made uh, for Raymond. And again, the RIA 24A2 is a 1718 commonplace book by one of Tipper's friends, John McSolly, which also contains a copy of the Book of Ballymote version of the Book of Rites that may have come through Tipper or perhaps directly from the manuscript in Trinity. Uh, and uh, Raymond certainly used more than one copyist, uh, uh, Hugh McCurtain, uh, uh, A. Bowie McCritchen, uh, for example, uh, copied some material from the book uh, for uh, Raymond, but printed extensive excerpts from Lauren Eckhart, uh, which is a tract in Ballymote, in his 1717 work, on the history of Ireland. Now, he doesn't explicitly name the source of his tract, but it's almost certainly that this is coming out of the manuscript while it's still in Trinity as early as 1717 through Raymond's patronage. Once borrowed from Trinity College, however, in, in October 1719, Raymond exercised tight control over access to the manuscript, and indeed, uh, it was claimed that no one was allowed to see it unless he was present. Now, following the sudden death of Anthony Raymond, the Book of Ballymote was not returned to Trinity College, Dublin, but most probably came into the hands of his amanuensis, Tygo Nocton. In 1626 and 1627, Tygo Nocton made two substantial extracts from it. He worked on the text systematically in 1726, making a list of contents of the Book of Ballymote in his commonplace book, which is now Trinity Manuscript 1361. Others, too, had access. In 1727, Valentine O'Hanlon made substantial uh, extracts from the book. Now, the following year, another of the O'Nocton scribal circle, uh, Richard Tipper, uh, co who copied uh, material from both the original manuscript and from previously made transcripts. And in, in uh, 1727 to 28, Tipper turned his attention to making a fairly full transcript of the text, probably expecting that its return would soon be demanded from Trinity College Dublin. Now, Tipper's partial transcript, which concludes with the section on Ohm, is now Trinity 1295. Now, for the antiquarian circle, the scribes in Dublin from the 1720s, the Book of Ballymote was a prestige text that could be plundered for information and to extract texts of the Irish past, but uh, he, it was approached in other ways also. Because Keating uh, had raised uh, an unfortunate question which was to preoccupy many of these people uh, in uh, the 18th century. That is, he said, there was an authoritative source uh, for the history of Ireland. Uh, the uh, authoritative source was a thing he called the Psalter of Tara. Now this, he asserted, uh, that is a prelude to a royal assembly known as the Fesh of Tara every three years. The chief historians inscribed the approved laws and customs in the role of kings, and this became known as the Psalter of Tara. 
and that, I quote Keating, every custom and record that was in Ireland that did not agree with that chief book was not regarded as genuine. Now, this idea does not originate with Keating. Uh, indeed, the uh, oldest version I've come across for the Psalter of Tara is, in fact, in one of the tales of the Book of Ballymote, uh, which talks about the making of the Psalter of Tara. Uh, uh, but that uh, the and there are references going way back and Keating didn't even seem to have claim, seen this thing but he claimed it existed now clearly if this book could be found it would provide a so solid and scholarly foundation on which the early history of Ireland could be built unfortunately no one could find it now the failure to identify the Psalter of Tara did not prevent antiquarians trying to find it Dermot O'Connor claimed that his copy of the Psalter of Tara that he had updated Keating with was written at Ballymore in the county of Meath, by which he meant the Book of Ballymote, thus equating the Psalter of Tara and the Book of Ballymote. And Lee Raymond, however, on the basis of a more critical study of the manuscript, was adamant that the Book of Ballymote was not the Psalter of Tara, and that that text had been destroyed in antiquity. And others took more sophisticated approaches. Matthew Kennedy, uh, writing in France in 1705, Jacobite lawyer, created a hypothetical framework for the reconstruction of what he called the Royal Book of Tara, which was the only authentic monument for antiquaries in, in years after. Now, he claimed the book had been copied and lodged in the principal churches, the several pre, uh, uh, prelates, by which all antiquaries might on occasion have resource success. Now, these volumes came to have the names of the churches in which they were lodged, the book or psalters of Armagh, Cashel, Tom McNoise, Clonina, Glendalough, and so on. And, and these, uh, these names were te of texts were very familiar to uh, antiquarians. Now, volumes containing widely different types of texts and from different dates were often dubbed with these familiar names. But this attempts to relate uh, this mythical uh, psalter of Tara uh, to a whole series of texts, including that of Ballymote. Now, attempts at reconstructing the definitive source book for Irish history by searching through manuscripts in the book of Ballymote for older fragments was balanced by another approach, characteristic of Dublin-based scribes. In 1716, for example, Richard Tipper, who you encountered already, compiled a very large miscellany of medieval texts now known as Alarm Wienach. In an address to the reader, he compiled, the compiler explained that he had long in mind to write this book. He explained St. Patrick had commissioned the best authors in Ireland to maintain and revise the history of Ireland on the evidence of the principal books of the nobility and saints of Ireland. He continued, indeed, the absence of those authors or their kind in the nation is the reason for me to undertake this work. So that they are, in fact, inventing uh, uh, source books for Irish history. And there are lots of these floating around the early 19th century. The Book of Nagnini, for example, in, in, in Ulster is the same thing. In the context of this mindset, the ownership of the Book of Ballymote by Tag O'Nocton, Nerve Street, and Dublin's Liberties was important. One of the tasks O'Nocton uh, set himself after Anthony Raymond's death in 1726 was to reinvent the Psalter of Tara using the Book of Ballymote. Now, O'Nocton's uh, 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 compilation survives as Trinity Manuscript 1289. It was described in the opening folio as the Psalter of Tara transcribed by Tago Nocton. Towards the end of the, the manuscript, there's a date of 9th of May, 1735, uh, uh, suggesting that it was almost finished by that date. But he was still at work on the manuscript in April, 1738. And he returned again to the manuscript in 1745, age 74. Now, Onocton's Psalter of Tara was neither a transcript of Ballymote nor a reconstruction of the Psalter from fragments attributed to it in other manuscripts. It was rather Onocton's own 
perception of what the Psalter of Tara might contain, and the Book of Ballymote was his model. Now, while the catalogue description of uh, Trinity College Dublin 1289 suggests that O'Nocton's transcription uh, of various works in the Psalter of Tara follows the Book of Ballymote word for word, this isn't the case. In his new Psalter, uh, O'Nocton adopted a broad framework of Ballymote for the first two-thirds of the new volume, beginning with the Sexitatis Mundi, followed by a number of chronological works in Ballymote, the Largoala, the Christian King Lists, succeeded by the Gnomic Sayings, uh, and in a departure from Ballymote, a set of poems on Tara, including some ones he may well have written himself, is included. Now, this disjuncture is not as marked as it looks because this focus on Tara uh, is the focus on Tara as a centre of kingship. And again, the King Lists and the Wisdom Sayings reflect the same sort of thing, the idea of kingship. This in turn, uh, then there is the massive genealogical material, and this in turn is followed by the Tinchanicus, and some of the linguistic material, the, the, the works from the, the learned classes uh, from Ballymote, placing this much material much closer to the genealogies than it had been in Ballymote. Thereafter, Unocton departed radically from his older texts. Um, he left out uh, the, all the material on the saints, um, uh, he left out uh, the Banchanicus, um, he left out the Tract on Home, uh, he left out uh, the Small Primer. Uh, but so what the, the text has a focus on, essentially, is kingship. Um, and since the learned were no, no longer part of the social world, you leave out the text relating to the learned, for example. Uh, and again, you knock out the translations of the classics because they're nothing to do with Ireland as far as Kelsey is concerned. Now, since according to Keating, the Psalter of Tara was said to be, have been updated on a regular basis. The new Psalter of Tara, based on Ballymote, uh, was not uh, uh, a dead text. It was all knowledge about Ireland that required updating. What is striking is the structural similarity between Ballymote and O'Nocton's Tara. They adopt the similar social logic of juxtaposing and thus linking biblical and universal history of the sex etas mundi with the Largo Wall. Again, as in Ballymote, origin legends follow tracts about kingship, lists of Christian kings, advices and ruling, before moving down the hierarchy but providing the genealogical texts, allowing the broad patterns of the people in Ireland, peopling of Ireland and the Largo Walla to be connected with the histories of individual families. Placing it within Shanachus immediately after this, juxtaposed history, people and place to form a new social memory in the 18th century of Irish society. Now, in the world of the 1730s, shaped by the outbreak of patriotism, or as an older generation would have called it, colonial nationalism, led by Swift and others in the previous decade, the nature of Irishness was a live issue. And history, a vital element of that. Onyakton knew of, and may even have read, Molyneux's controversial work of 1689, asserting the rights of a separate Irish kingdom. And he may also have read some of Swift's political writings. Again, the interest in kingship in the Psalter may reflect his own Jacobitism. Significantly, although he is personally pious, Onocton omits all the religious material uh, uh, from Ballymote, such as the Tract of the Saints, the work on the Mass. This, perhaps, may have been culturally divisive. Onocton was not concerned to preserve the authenticity of the ancient text. He wanted to update Ballymote in this new authoritative compilation for his own peers, and he adds a whole set of new uh, uh, texts to that. Onecton's commonplace books that demonstrate that he was at home in the world of print, as with the world of manuscripts, and he was an avid reader of domestic and foreign news, selecting items according to his interest and admitting others. His commonplace books reflect a modernising tendency in his approach to the history of Ireland, using the manuscript tradition and its interaction with print creatively. 
this cosmopolitan 18th century scholar adopted a similar approach to the Book of Ballymote, deliberately combining text transcribed without sources uh, for more modern ones. And for Onecton, this was no betrayal of the Gaelic Shamakas tradition. Revising and modernizing of the historical text at his disposal was, in essence, a reinvention of the Psalter of Tara to provide a strong social memory of Ireland, articulated within the traditional social logic of the Book of Ballymote, yet incorporating elements that are not thought important for a modern compendium of knowledge uh, uh, about Ireland and, revision, uh, of Tara, uh, and the revision of Tara uh, every three years. Uh, Will I stop there? I, I, I stop there. Simply to say, there are later uh, owners and users. Uh, when uh, Raymond, uh, after Raymond's death, it, it moves very quickly through a whole series, and you can see them there, uh, of people uh, who own it uh, and, and seem to have made copies from it, before ending up uh, in uh, Drogheda, uh, owned by this man, uh, Thomas uh, Durney, uh, and then to John Finglas, and then, as you've heard already, uh, to the uh, world of a millwright's wife uh, who sells it uh, to the Chevalier Thomas O'Gorman, uh, uh, and at which point Charles O'Connor, about the Garrick, gets his hands on it, uh, and then to the Royal Irish Academy. I think significantly, uh, uh, Thomas, uh, Edward O'Reilly in the 1820s had a memory of the Chevalier O'Gorman saying that he was giving it to the Royal Irish Academy so that the text might be printed. So the Book of Ballymote begins to interact with the modern word print at that point, a point that we could have uh, developed. So when Charles O'Connor, 1777, Charles O'Connor, Baum de Guerre, uh, borrow, who borrowed the Book of Ballymote from Chevalier Thomas O'Gorman, scribbled on fully with seven of the manuscript, this book, which is full of truth and poetic fable, is in the possession of Charles O'Connor, Baum de Guerre. Now, while the text of the Book of Ballymote remained unchanged from the 14th century, what succeeding generations made of the text, um, uh, well, that text altered a good deal. The process of historic, sorting historical truth from fable was not a simple one. For the O'Clerys of the 16th century, the truth of Ballymote lay not in its details. They were important, but rather in the social logic of the, man, the, of the manuscript articulated. For Usher, in the 17th century antiquarians, that social logic had gone, so the manuscript provided factual genealogical information meshed, uh, embedded in a mass of poetic fable. In the early 18th century, the debate over history and its role in Ireland saw Ballymote mobilised in various ways, both for careful factual constructions by Anthony O'Raymond and Tiger Nocton's less disciplined reimagining about what the great source book for understanding Ireland, both poetically and factually, might look like using Ballymote as his model. Only as it moved into the enlightened world of the academy in the 18th century did the many perceptions of it in different cultural contexts begin to stabilise under the hands of Charles O'Connor and others in their attempt to fact, winnow fact from fable, although perhaps that process has not quite yet been completed. And there are Charles O'Connor, Brown the Gare's hand, and Valency's hand as well. Thank you very much.